Welcome back, guys and gals. This is the Northern Miner Podcast, and I am your host, Matthew Keevil. As always, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please swing by yukonminingalliance.ca and check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in the Yukon Territory. Um, and anyone who lives in Vancouver will be well aware we've been snowed in or something. I don't know. This is crazy. I, I've been shoveling for like three days. I thought I lived in Toronto briefly. It was it was a scary, scary situation. Uh, but anyways, so uh, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Uh, we do have a great show this week. Uh, I'm going to take it a little bit light on the macro. We expect everything to stay fairly uh, even keel through uh, the new year when we'll get back to watching what might be going on in the uh, wild world of commodities. Uh, but meanwhile, um, I do have some really cool uh, content for you this week. Firstly, Leslie will be returning with an awesome episode of the Geology Corner. Uh, and this week, we get all interstellar um, up in here. <laughs> um, Leslie Good digs into the formation of gold in the universe. Uh, there is a lot of discussion on stars and briefly on Star Trek. Um, but uh, it's an actually really cool addition uh, of the Geology Corner. And we'll run uh, we'll run that first. And then uh, after that, I have some some something great uh we have one of our favorite guests back in studio well not in studio but on the show um joe mazumdar from exploration insights joan joins us at the coffee shop um and we have a discussion fairly wide-ranging once again usually when joe and i sit down it gets it goes all over the place uh but this week once again uh joe and i have very good timing uh last time we did one of these we got to talk about rubicon and the phoenix deposit which everyone will recall from earlier this year uh was a big story due to their uh, geology not hanging together and, and any huge amount of money being invested um, and then the stock essentially going to zero, almost zero, one, one penny or something I think was the low. Uh, so they essentially went nearly bankrupt. Uh, it is being restructured now, I believe. I uh, saw some news the other week. Anyway, uh, that's a bit of a tangent. Uh, last week, um, people may have caught this news about Arizona mining and uh, there was an article published by a United Kingdom publication called The Global Mining Observer, I believe. And anyways, this publication on the company's Taylor deposit in Arizona, which is a zinc play, uh, caused the, the stock to just got, just get kicked and then kicked all over the place, like beat up all over the place. I think it was down at 1.60 cents uh, on a $3 per share valuation, so significant. Um, and anyways, this uh, had to do with manganese content in their, in their potential concentrate and the economic uh, repercussions of such a byproduct. Um, but anyways... Joe and I get into Arizona in a great amount of depth, and Joe being a uh, an analyst himself in uh, prior to taking over uh, a large portion of Exploration Insights, has some pretty cool things to say about A, the Arizona mining deposit, what the manganese can mean, and also a little bit of commentary on the article and uh, just generally the response to it. Um, so that's another really fun little segment. We'll also get uh, into a little bit of investment advice heading into 2017, how to hedge on downside risk, uh, how to leverage yourselves to stuff you you might like including gold um we get into all that fun stuff um and as usual joe and i have a great time um but before we get into that uh i'm going to firstly run the geology corner um and i'm really excited this this episode is great um so but without further ado i'll leave it to leslie well you know at the request of one of our listeners um he asked if I could kind of delve into the origins of gold. Mm -hmm. So, you know, where did it come from? How did it get here? And most importantly, how we can find it. So it was really hilarious because I started going looking for answers, right? 
And I ended up getting sucked into this black hole of information. I'm being tossed around in all sorts of directions. And ultimately, I found myself following the stars in the universe. Oh, no, Star Trek. So kind of, yeah. (laughs) Best show ever. So as it turns out, you know, um, the gold in our universe was born out of a star. And not just any star, right? But a really giant one, one that's weighing more than eight to 10 times um, the mass of our sun and and more. So in other words, we're talking about gold being born out of a big, bright star, brighter and bigger than most things seen in the universe. So anyway, the most important thing to know about the universe is this. So where water sustains life on Earth, gravity sustains the evolution of the universe. So in other words, gravity nurtures the formation of elements and all the matter that we know. So that's kind of cool. So I'll explain. The main element in space is hydrogen. So this is what the stars are originally made out of. And so the gravity pulls the hydrogen and dust floating about the universe into one point in space. And when the pressure from the gravitational forces builds up, it causes the hydrogen atoms to fuse together and that forms helium, right? Nuclear fusion all that jazz. So that nuclear process emits huge amounts of heat. So when we see, say that, or when we see that a star is like burning, it's not actually burning. It's not like a yuletide log on the fire, right? It's just an exothermic reaction from hydrogen atoms like fusing together into helium. So once all this hydrogen is exhausted, the star starts, you know, like hunting for other fuel um, to keep it going. And it begins to fuse helium together. Uh, which turns into carbon and then oxygen and and eventually the elements are packed into something more dense like nickel, iron, chromium, cobalt. And this entire time when this process is happening, gravity is like always at work trying to crunch the star kind of in upon itself. But the thermal pressure from the reactions of all this nuclear fusion opposes the force of gravity. So the star, okay, is like sitting there all happy-go-lucky and burning and amazing. So much um, like life on Earth, though, stars do have a life cycle. So eventually, there's nothing left for the star to burn. Um, And gravity takes over and the star implodes. Okay, so this is the beginning of the creation of the whole origin of gold story that I'm going to get into. So it's where it gets really interesting. So, okay, for the star like ours, it's like the sun, right? It's really small. So when it dies, the outer layers of the star will fall inwards and it bounces off the solid core and then it just blows out into the universe. Not a big deal. It's not that bad. Um, The solid core that remains is actually called a white dwarf. And um, the majority of this universe, the stars in the universe actually dies like that. But in the case of these giant stars that we're talking about, it's so much more catastrophic. Of course, everyone knows it's called a... Or a supernova, or you know, like when when they when they explode, right? Um, and so when it explodes as a supernova, um, and as the star c- collapses, the insane pressures that happen because it's so massive and the gravity is so insane, it forces the protons and electrons to combine to form neutrons. Okay, so what you end up isn't a white dwarf, but what you get is a neutron star. Okay. Okay, they're insanely dense. So if you can imagine, they'd be about one and a half times the mass of the sun, but just the size of like a city, right? So now if a neutron star in the universe that's just kind of hanging around suddenly collides with another neutron star that formed from another supernova, then it's seriously so much mass 
coming together that the universe cannot handle it. And then all of a sudden you get a black hole that forms. But the cool thing is, is that the collision between those two neutron stars are so intense that it forces the neutrons and protons to combine, resulting in super heavy elements like gold and mercury and lead and platinum and more. And some of it manages to escape the black hole because it's like blown out into the universe mm -hmm. and it gets thrown outwards. And so that's where how gold is actually made in the universe. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, what, what about Earth? Yeah. Okay. So this is it. And brings it to Earth. Mm -hmm. Well, we had our big bang supernova, like, I don't know, 14 billion years ago. And then Earth clumped together out of this stellar dust and debris and began to grow until the interior of it was like hot enough to melt the heavy iron elements and all that sank to the core. So at the time, all the gold would have went down into the core with it, but instead we see proportionally a lot more gold in the upper levels of Earth's crust than we theoretically should have. And if you are an avid listener of this Geology Corner podcast, and you know that this is a subject I covered earlier called the Earth's late veneer. The idea that during the first 500 million years of Earth's life, it was blasted by asteroids containing heavy metals like gold and you name it. And maybe it's like a black hole fallout from nearby galaxy. I don't know. <laughs> but that enriched the sea of magma that was Earth at the time just before it cooled into the crust, which is why we see proportionally more gold in the crust than before. So, um, But th this is the story. So the creation of Gold in the universe stems from stars imploding and colliding upon each other by forcing, you know, protons, protons join together to form neutrons, neutrons and protons form heavy elements like gold. And these elements are just gobbling up all this more neutrons and getting heavier and heavier until finally it just like collapses and blows out in dust. And then we get bombarded with all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's why we see more of the heavier elements near the surface of the Earth's crust than we do at the center, which theoretically is where it all should be. And um, But I really want to uh, keep talking about the universe because realistically, you know, I'll, I'll leave everyone with this, you know, all the gold deposits on Earth, they've all formed under an extremely unlikely set of perfectly timed conditions. And I think that's why maybe human civilizations have been so enamored with the yellow metal since like the, the dawn of time. and. Because I think perhaps like we look at gold the same way as we see the earth in the universe, you know, this extraordinarily rare and exceptionally beautiful thing that's born out of a star. This is Matthew Keeble with the Northern Miner Podcast, and we are having a bit of a regular segment now, and I am calling it at the coffee shop because we continually do it at the coffee shop. I am once again joined by Joe Mazumdar from Exploration Insights. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again, Matt, for having me. Maybe a little insight on what you see from the larger caps moving into next year. Okay, I mean, if, even though the gold prices come down from that, uh, you know, midsummer peak of over 1300, you know, the, the idea for getting quality projects that work at lower gold price environments is that most of the exploration, the limited amount of exploration done by majors is, is in brownfields, close to where they already are, such that the hurdle rates are lower because they've already paid back their capital, it's just to keep the plant running, uh, that sort of thing. And you know, like like companies like Newmont, I think I, I showed like 80% of their $200 million budget is all is all in brownfields. And 
really uh, Goldfields doesn't really have grassroots anymore. So the lack of grassroots sort of suggests to us that the ability to find grassroots is is impeded. So you won't see a lot. And so if you're not seeing a lot of capital expenditures, well, we've seen a significant drop in capital expenditures, then we're not going to see a lot of new production over the next three to five years. And if there's no grassroots exploration, then we're not going to see much new stuff coming in the next five to ten years. So then for us, we're looking at, well, where are these guys going to find these quality projects that they need to make their hurdle rates of now at 1200 1250 reserve prices with a 15% IRR. There's just not that many projects out there. Yeah. So then if you want to invest in the quality, then you got to be looking for the companies that are looking for quality projects, which would be the exploration companies or some or a development project that you see a single asset one that you see could fit the criteria of the majors. And it's interesting, I mean, something that comes to mind for me, and I'm not sure if you looked at this, was this G4 Capital thing with Sean Ryan, where Nico took a big piece of essentially the Yukon again. Well, well, this is interesting because my next PDAC talk, I think I'll make around joint ventures and earn-ins, because the way you got to look at when you're investing in a company, you got to find out if they're earning into the project of a major, and sometimes they could... They could, I want to say fool you, but give you the impression that the major is actually interested in the company yeah, yeah. when they are just trying to sell a project and the company doesn't have enough cash to pay them, which they would prefer, and all they want um, is to be paid, and so they end up with shares in the company. So a major might have 10% of a company because they couldn't pay them 100% cash, and that's what they've got. And we've like when I worked for Newmont, that was the same situation. We would end up with these equity stakes in companies that we weren't really interested in the project anymore, but we ended up with, with shares. You really want, if you really want a footprint by a major saying that they're presenting a um, sort of um, uh, affirmation that this project may be something they're interested in, then you want them to see that it's a proactive placement, not a passive placement from a transaction. You got, you got to make sure you sort that out. And then after that you're satisfied that it's a it's, it's a legitimate footprint, then you got to look at they're just taking an equity stake. They're not taking a project stake. And, and you got to work out, like in terms of dilution, there's two forms of dilution. At the denominator where you dilute your shares to pay to work on the project or you dilute the project out by selling a stake in it to a major. Yeah. So I mean, what like what sort of as you guys move forward, what will you be looking for in the new year for for investment? Like I, I think what we want to look for are probably the same thing that majors hopefully are, are thinking about is major district scale projects that get them into a mining friendly jurisdiction and giving them a footprint, and then what they would look at potentially as a starter project within that area that they could test the permitting, test the engineering test what they need to do to get something that pays back capital quickly and then know that they could grow it. And the big thing that I got out of a presentation that Agnico did, and I, I don't mean to keep talking about Agnico just because you brought it up, but <laughs> they did present an interesting slide where when they acquire a company, it may look on a per ounce basis like an expensive acquisition, like a, a premium, but what they, what they show and what they've done and executed is that every additional ounce they find post-acquisition is like a third or 25% of the cost of the initial acquisition. And so the whole idea is you buy, you pay a premium for what you know, 
and then you pay a severe discount for what you don't know, but you're going in there thinking that you can convert a lot of this area into ounces that will work for you. And that's the message Gold Corp's done on coffee, repeatedly hammering that home. And not only was it the vast project uh, portfolio that they got from Kamenak, which actually was a prospect generator, and then turned out that they focused on one part of that project. And, and then they went for it. Where And Gold Corp's also putting footprints in the companies that surround exactly. them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Independence Gold, for example. Exactly. Um, and yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's something to watch for our listeners moving into the new year. Um, because I've heard, uh, I think it was a CIBC conference that just happened, or Scotia, maybe. And I'm hearing the same thing on the base metal side with Lending Mining and First Quantum and uh, HUD Bay, is that they're not really looking for advanced stage acquisitions anymore. They're more looking for earlier stage JV opportunities. They don't want to expend too much capital right now, but they are looking for promising exploration plays. So so what we're saying in gold also seems to be playing out in base metals very well, much. I would say finally and hallelujah, because you know this, uh, if gold starts to follow these industries, which are marginal costs that concern themselves with cost and returns, then gold, the gold industry and the equities, which will be much healthier in terms of what they do. And and I think going forward, if, if companies, I believe, are not looking for development projects that are near term only because probably their investors aren't looking for a 3 to 5% compound annual growth rate anymore. Yeah. Now they're fine with flat production profiles, especially on the gold producers, if they could show a higher return. And that philosophy and that mantra is really being pushed such that you know, companies before that would never sell production, sell production with no problem and focus on their core. And, and that's basically what we've been hearing, sort of these corporate buzzwords now are quality ounces and they really focus on margins, right? Which is, is good, yeah. That's how you should be doing any business, really, not just mining. But. Yeah, it, it's, it's the difference between looking at accretive NPV where a dollar of NPV means the decision is yes to do it, rather than, hey, I need a 15 plus percent return from this project. And let's hope if gold prices rally, they don't revert back to their pure annual output figures where they're like, who who produces the most gold? Like, and, and, and that could change. That could change because uh, companies and investors are fickle. So what's really driving this, I believe, is not only the situation of the impairments, the lower gold price, the lack of free cash flow generation, but the understanding the way they can attract new investors is by showing return so they could compete with other investment opportunities. But I would, I would say it's unique to the gold mining industry because when I worked at a base metal company, Phelps Dodge, it was all about costs and safety, whereas in, in, in a gold company was at that time, it was about ounces, volume. But now the volume argument has changed to the profit mantra. That's very interesting because you're right. I mean, when you look at gold previously, let's say five, the last five years, reporting on gold was very focused on overall ounce figures. Whereas if you look at the copper industry, they're very focused on C1 cash costs, and they always have been, right? Like, and, and if we look at it, like we talk about geopolitical risk, of, you know, again, I, I cite Agnico because this was a really good slide. What they were showing was, you know, hey, look at my geopolitical risk exposure, and then I have the lowest exposure to high-risk jurisdictions. And look at how that translates into a, a PE multiple. And then they were showing how high they have a multiple. But what's interesting is the one that has the highest multiple is actually Rand Gold. And, and Rand Gold, interestingly enough, has probably the highest or one of the highest geopolitical risk profiles. But they have had 
a mantra of fiscal discipline for over a decade. And the, the investors have been paying for that for a long time. So that goes to show me that geopolitical risk matters up to a point. So if you have no fiscal discipline and have a lot of, let's say, triple A rated based assets, it doesn't really matter. No, because because the balance sheet won't be right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and that's a, it's super interesting, actually. And, and the one thing we did want to talk about today, because um, this has been bursting out on news wires since, I guess, yesterday, um, and in the media we heard about it extensively, was this Arizona mining thing. Um, a, a blog, I guess, or a newsletter called Global Mining Observer out of the UK, I believe, posted an article that compared the deposit, the Taylor deposit, they have a zinc deposit in Arizona, to Briex. And, and the headline said, Little Briex, or something along those lines in air quotes, and the stock has been halted as we sit here today. It, fa it had fallen around 60 cents from highs of around $3. It's down around three twenty-five or two twenty-five now. Um, so we wanted to talk a little bit. Now, the big issue that they sort of picked on here, and maybe you can talk to it a little bit, is manganese, I believe, in zinc concentrate. And apparently this is a big deal, um, and it just set off a wildfire. Um, so maybe a little bit of discussion about why that would be such a big deal, if you, if you can. And then also um, a little bit of comments on... on the market response to something like this. So the Global Mining um, Observer is an independent uh, um, mining news bulletin that's that's out of London. It's actually quite a good uh, bulletin, and I read it. They've had really good interviews with uh, CEOs like David Garofalo here, um, and that, and we follow it. So, so what happened was, I, I believe it was last week on the Sunday they came out with this article, and then the headline, like you said, was. Briex-like, you know, issue with a zinc developer, um, and and the issue uh, was that um, the manganese content within the concentrate might be um, like they actually say it in the technical report, but they never cite it. The thing is that uh, Arizona Mining basically, after they did the technical report and the metallurgy, so far that they would commented on that we have no deleterious elements, and when they say deleterious elements, they could be I have no high arsenic. I don't have any high bismuth. I don't have any high selenium. I don't have any Things high that cadmium. The smelter. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Penalties or saying, okay, I got to blend you down. But they never actually commented on the manganese. And the manganese, and we've been talking amongst um, amongst ourselves about this, is there's a certain amount of manganese that's required in a smelter, and they like, uh, and that's a low level amount. You know, uh, I, I believe it's like 0.5 or 0.2. I don't know the percent. Yeah. Much under 1%. But after you get over 0.7 to 1, it gets a bit too much. But the whole issue is about, and, and they're stating in their concentrate in the technical report on the table, which the Global Mining Observer quotes, is 1.3%. And so that seems kind of high. Yeah. But, you know, the issue is that, hey, depending on the volume, you could potentially blend. But that's not to say that added requirement is not going to cost them a little bit more. So it might... It, I don't think it'll totally, you know, negate the high quality of the zinc con, which is, I, I think it's 50 to 55% con with not much deleterious elements. But then the manganese is an issue for running the smelter efficiently. If you have too much manganese, you can't run it efficiently. So the issue that they might have to is parcel it out to many smelters such that they could blend it individually or find a bigger smelter. They could take it all, but they would have to blend it against a lot of volume against somebody else that's got very low manganese, which they need. Exactly. So the issue becomes, you know, you have to do this. You have to, and, and, 
and I think Arizona Mining should have got in front of it earlier. But saying that it's Bree X, that's probably, you know, a little yeah, a little bit overstated. But it wasn't them that said it as much as they quoted somebody who's... An investment yeah, banking community in Or London, whatever, somewhere. you know, yeah, somewhere, somebody source. that's anonymous source that said that. And if you're going to say something like that, put your name down. Well, for me, a Bree X issue is like fraud, corruption, you know, just criminality, you know. And, and, I, and, and this was an omission. Yeah, and, 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 and you could say to them that, hey, you know, you've got 1.3 and everything else I hear, you know, this, this seems like, a, you know, a high amount. The I like the institutions love that stock. And I, I like I get a lot of the big, yeah, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge gainer this year. And you get notes coming down from all the big Canadian banks about it and they love it. Um, so it's interesting that, that something like this, like you're, you're a former analyst um, and it wouldn't pop to any of the bankers out there like this isn't an issue that would pop to- well, it's it's interesting that you know when when we go over a stock and i'm not naming names yeah. but when we say something um you know it seems like all the analysts don't want to talk about it yeah. Yeah. and so if we say something like you know what we don't think that grade matches that throughput and then they would accuse us of saying hey you guys are making this stuff up and so even though I don't agree with the global mining observer, you know, quoting somebody who said that it was Briex like, I do disagree with the point that, hey, nobody can say anything negative about any stock. So if somebody says something highly positive about a stock, why doesn't somebody say something like, hey, I think you're wrong? Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, you're blowing this out of proportion. Yeah. So it's a... So we don't say much about when somebody's positively blowing something out of proportion, yeah. but we ram something down when somebody's negatively out of proportion. Then it becomes a legal issue. You're but exactly right. but I don't see a lot of companies saying that, oh, if somebody is promoting something over and above what they think it should be, they don't come out saying, you know what? I think that guy is actually saying something that's, you know, that's ridiculous because there's no way my throughput's going to be like that. And there's no way my head grade's going to be like that. And we're going to have issues with the con. Well, I mean, we, we like to call uh, PEAs or preliminary economic assessments um, pretty optimistic studies. So POS for short. So, I mean, it's the only thing that can happen when you go to a PFS or pre-feasibility study or feasibility study with that detailed engineering you know, uh, better metallurgy, better understanding of the cost, it can only get worse. Yeah, so so the issue is that if you put up your first step is this, and that's like a scoping study. I mean, you've got inferred material, you got, hey, this is how big I can make it. But then the reality is that, you know, that throughput that you were putting in is now going to be 25% lower. And that head grade is going to be maybe 10 to 15% lower, you know, and, and, and the costs are actually going to be different. And you know, hey, that permitting is going to not going to take two years. It's going to probably take three years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we talked about this in our previous episode where we discussed Rubicon and some of the, the issues of 43101s um, and, and how people just have to be cognizant of, of A, the differences and B, sort of the stage, especially like you said about the PEA. And, and, and if you look at behavioral economics, all you got to understand is anybody's motivation. Yeah, you know, what's your motivation to say this? And the Global Mining Observer is independent. And if their motivation is to shock, they definitely shock. Yeah. But from what I've read before, when what they try to do is just try to say things that, you know, seem that everybody's ignoring. I think they probably went overboard with the Briex comment. Yeah. But I don't think pushing out the manganese issue 
it, I don't think there's anything any problem with that. Uh, thanks again, Joe Mazumder from Exploration Insights for joining us this week. Um, and uh, please surf by explorationinsights.com and check out Joe and Brent's work. Uh, it's fantastic. They're both technical experts, so they do bring a lot to the table. Um, and uh, this has been the Northern Miner Podcast. I'm Matthew Keevil, and we'll talk to you next week.